Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies channel, Ari Barblat. I'm in dialogue today with my guest, Dr. Rachel Schreiber. We are here to discuss her new book, Elaine Black Yoneda, Jewish Immigration, Labor Activism, and Japanese American Exclusion and Incarceration, published by Temple University Press 2021. Rachel is University Professor of Art, Media, and Cultural History at the New School. Thank you for your time. I'm honored to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. It's great to be here. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the person, writer, and scholar you would become as an adult? Well, um, I grew up mostly on Long Island and uh, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and Maryland, although my family moved around a bit more than that. But um, I think I think what really is relevant and what really shaped um, my interest in this subject is that I am the child of immigrants. Um, my father was actually born in um, Israel um, when he was born there. It was Palestine. And my mother was born in the U.S., but her parents both uh, came to the U.S. shortly before World War II. So all four of my grandparents left Europe um, shortly before the start of World War II. They were not um, technically Holocaust survivors in the sense that they weren't there during the war years, although their entire families really um, were murdered in, in that war. So um, I think that I feel a very strong connection to immigrant history in the United States and in particular, uh, Jewish immigrant history. What lessons does your book teach the United States in the year 2022? Well, it's interesting because when I first started um, researching Elaine and um, the, the, you know, kind of one of the most poignant Parts of her story is the eight months that she spent with her husband and son at the Manzanar Relocation Center. And, um, you know, that there's a lot to say, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the fact that she was a Jewish woman in a concentration camp in California during World War II. Um, But when I was really getting into the research for the book was in the years when children were being separated from their parents at the Mexican border. And that just, you know, it just struck me um, as incredibly poignant, um, to use that word again, that this country, although it is a a country of immigrants, just can't seem to um, have, can't still continues throughout the decades and centuries to have a xenophobic attitude towards immigrants, even though, you know, really, um, most, most people who call themselves United States citizens, who are United States citizens have immigration in their past. Um, And that, you know, that, that's an ongoing truth. Um, And then, 
And then I came across some stories um, in particular in the news about it, one in particular about the site, a former site of a Japanese American um, camp that was used to incarcerate Japanese American citizens during World War II. That same site being used to incarcerate, to hold and detain uh, children of immigrants across the Mexican border as they were separated from their families. And that that connection through time was just so powerful. It was powerful enough and then even more powerful when I learned that um, there were protests um, by people in the town. It's actually in Oklahoma where that uh, site of incarceration is. And among the protesters were Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated there. Um, so it's like within, you know, within people's lifetimes, within people's memory, we seem to keep repeating the same kinds of um, mistakes in our attitudes about immigrants. And that extends to xenophobic attitudes about Muslims after 9-11. It extends, you know, to the fact that there's been waves of anti-Asian violence um, during the pandemic. Um, we, we seem to have a um, we seem to be on repeat of creating moral panics around some kind of racialized other whom we, uh, upon whom we cast our fears and our anxieties um, and, and misplace um, blame about current events. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Yeah, um, thanks. Thanks for asking that. That's a great question. Because I mean, I, I think that Elaine's story is, is super interesting. And again, like I said, I think in many ways, the, the most, um, you know, the, the point in the story that that most people grab onto right away is the eight months that she spent at Manzanar. Um, but I also would add that she was an incredibly important figure in the in the West Coast labor activist community throughout the 1930s. So for me, there's kind of there, there are a number of themes that weave through this book, um, and the her time at Manzanar is is certainly one of them. Another is the fact of women's roles, women's heightened roles in uh, communist labor activism in the 1930s, which. Um, when I was writing the book, what I learned and was confirmed for me by other scholars is that many people have written um, have written about the fact that the Communist Party embraced women in the 1930s, but very little is written that gives a sense of what that really meant on the ground. So that was something I really hope to convey is her time throughout the 1930s and what did it mean that she worked for the International Labor Defense? What did that look like day to day? Um, and yet another theme is also um, looking at the culture of and, and the nature and the culture of um, West Coast labor activism in, in the pre-World War II period, which was distinct from that of the Northeast um, and extending a little bit into the Midwest and probably into some cities of Canada. But um, I think that when we think of American immigrant labor activism, we think of New York City Maybe we think of a few other cities in again in the Northeast, but um, that activism was distinctly different from the from what happened in California, and the the primary difference was that um, whereas in the Northeast the unions and the activists tended to be specific to um, 
to their specific immigrant groups. Um, in other words, there were the unions of Italian Americans and the unions of Jewish Americans and, and so forth. On the West Coast, there was a much more interracial um, flavor to the um, ways that people socialized and also to the ways that they organized. Um, so I'm, I was happy to, to illuminate that as well. I think if I got into your question, Ari, I think you were asking. Oh, that about, was superb. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? So the story of a Jewish woman spending time in a concentration camp in California What's important to me about that is that it's not it, it, it's not meant to say, you know, we, we need to study that entire history more thoroughly. The whole history of Japanese American exclusion and incarceration, I would argue that it's just not adequately studied. And the fact that a Jewish woman and and I'll say a white woman, um, which is a complicated thing to say because Jews are, were not uniformly considered white through all of American history. But I would say that Elaine definitely carried white privilege with her into the camp. Um, it's not it's not meant to say that it was any better or worse for or, or it's not meant to say it was worse for her. In fact, in some ways it was better because she did have that privilege. But the more important message to me about it is that her presence there exposes understanding her presence there, exposes the hypocrisy of the American rhetoric um, that said that racial, they were fighting, we were fighting a war in Europe that opposed racial classification while we were cl classifying people according to their race and nationality here in the United States. Um, and that, you know, that to me is really, in many ways, the key message um, is, again, going back to the what I'd said earlier about how in the United States, we just we can't seem to deal with our relationship to immigrants. Um, and so here we were in the United States uh, making assumptions about Japanese Americans um, based on on where they had come from, where they had emigrated from and what they looked like um, while we were decrying um, Hitler's policies in Europe um, in one only has to understand that the same treatment was not extended to German Americans or Italian Americans who were equally, you know, who had equally come from countries that were our enemy in that in World War II. To know that the exclusion and incarceration of Japanese Americans wasn't wasn't really or solely or fully about their potential to um, to support the Japanese war effort, you know, and to undermine, to be enemies of the state, but was an expression of a long history of deep-seated anti-Asian and specifically anti-Japanese racism on the West Coast. Um, it has to be understood in that way. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't add up otherwise, um, because these were, these were largely almost entirely American citizens who really, um, whose first loyalty really was to the United States. What were conditions like at Manzanar? Can you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, at Manzanar, um, like in other camps, and they, they varied from camp to camp, um, but at Manzanar, the conditions were poor. 
Um, there's a whole other story, which is um, it, I don't I don't spend a lot of time in the book, but I, I could have about the Owens Valley of California, where Manzanar is located. If listeners are familiar with the movie Chinatown, it is the story that of diverting water from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles, which made the growth of Los Angeles possible and the development of Los Angeles. In fact, the name Manzanar comes from the Spanish word for apple, um, which is named that way because that valley was a rich valley of fruit orchards under both indigenous people and even after um, Spanish colonization. Um, but in US history, as I said, the wa as water was diverted from that valley to Los Angeles, the valley became desertified. And so by the time Manzanar was built as a camp, um, the conditions in the valley were like uh, extreme dust storms, very dry. Um, and all of these conditions really exacerbated Tommy, Elaine's son, Tommy's poor health conditions. Um, it, it's also, it's desert and Mount, you're under the, I, 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 I went there, I visited there, which I think is important. Standing there, you're under the, the shadow, as it were, of, of mountains of the Sierras. So it could be 100 degrees during the day, but still be very cold at night. And indeed, the facilities at the camp were often plumbing would freeze. Um, and generally speaking, the, um, <clears throat> the, the quality of food and shelter was, was not good. Um, as I said, Elaine and her family, Car Elaine, Carl, and Tommy, had some privileges because, um, largely because for most of the people in the camp, you have to remember their entire families were incarcerated and their friends and their communities. Whereas Elaine's parents um, were not incarcerated. They were Jewish Americans living in Los Angeles and they could visit. And they did visit often and other friends of hers who were non-Japanese visited and they would bring her and the family things like that ranged from a little, you know, electric stove or hot plate to warm blankets to things of this nature, which which wasn't necessarily available to everyone um, who was at that camp. How did Elaine and Carl experience Manzanar? What were the social conditions there? How did they parent in such an environment? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that people, I think, often express surprise about the book is to learn about the range of politics within the camp. Um, there were many factions, and, um, and they did not get along. Um, and that eventually resulted in a full-scale uh, revolt and violence at the camp. To me, this is really central to the concept that that I've said that the history of Japanese American exclusion and incarceration is is not well enough studied. Because as soon as, as if I put it this way, it becomes rather obvious. I think if I say take a take a group of people um, called Japanese Americans, this is actually a very diverse group of people. They're not homogenous, and take a community of Japanese Americans, mostly from the Los Angeles areas, from the Los Angeles area and relocate them to a camp. Well, they brought with them all of the social class and political divides that they had with them in Los Angeles. You know, you had wealthy business people and you had 
you know, gardeners. Um, actually, I take that back. You probably didn't really have super wealthy people because once ish, once Executive Order 9066 was issued, people, Japanese Americans of any means simply left the West Coast. <clears throat> they could relocate to New York or as Isamu Noguchi did and others, um, which, you know, which just wasn't, <clears throat> wasn't available or possible for everyone. Okay. But in any case, back to your question, Ari, that, so there were, there really was a range <clears throat> of political positions among the people incarcerated at Manzanar that ranged from um, people who very much opposed uh, what was happening to people who cooperated with it. And that's yet another surprising element of it. Um to get to the question of Elaine and Carl's parenting, it was challenging for them because, um, as I said, Tommy always had suffered from poor health and the conditions of the camp really exacerbated that. Um, and also they were they were among those who cooperated with the authorities and did not oppose exclusion and incarceration, um, which people find very surprising and shocking. But what it meant was that they were constantly scrutinized at camp by people who um, <clears throat> who opposed the what was happening. And here too, um, Elaine was both aware of her privilege and also she tried to excuse <clears throat> me. She tried to be cognizant and sensitive to the fact that other children didn't necessarily have grandparents bringing them items from, you know, outside. There was also a um, one of the things, one of a number of things that made Manzanar extremely unusual was there was a so-called euphemistically named children's village. Um, the War Relocation Authority had uh, moved an orphanage from L.A. to Manzanar, and an incredible um, act of um, selflessness, the staff of that orphanage agree demanded, in fact, to go to Manzanar and care for these orphans. So you have children Tommy's age who are there, but are, are there as orphans. Um, and there, there's a school, there's a kindergarten eventually, not right at first, but Tommy's in school and he's got friends, but he's, he's also in this strange position because he's got this non-Japanese American mother and he's, you know, he's, he's under, under the public eye in a very specific way. And he's, because of his health issues, he had terrible asthma, which the dust was really a problem with, but also he had a lot of food allergies. So he was constantly having to have special food. So it was yet another way in which he was different and treated differently than other children there. What kinds of friends did Elaine and Carl make at Manzanar? Who were their friends? What were their friendships like? What forms of amity and bonding manifested at Manzanar? Do you have any knowledge of how long they stayed in touch after Manzanar? Yeah, they, I mean, a number of their friends at camp were people they were friends with before the war. Um, <clears throat> so they had, they had met in Los Angeles and relocated to San Francisco in the 30s, around 1934, <clears throat> but they still had many connections from San Francisco. So um, some of their closest friends in the camp <clears throat> were, 
were people with whom they'd been friends um, beforehand. And many of them, they also remained uh, lifelong friends with. And that is manifest um, later in, later in the 20th century when they became involved in the committee for um, to designate Manzanar a national landmark and historic site. Uh, they reconnected and worked with a lot of um, the people they had been friends with there. In, in addition to some of the people they met through that work were people they they didn't know at Manzanar because again they were they were there for eight months, um, so there were others who who had spent time at Manzanar who came after them. What was life like for Carl and Elaine after Manzanar? Well, in yet another kind of <laughs> ironic or terrible turn, um, all of the discrimination that they had faced before the war continued after. And the reason I say that's ironic is um, I should share with listeners that Carl enlisted in the U.S. Army. It was always his wish to enlist in the U.S. Army before they got to Manzanar. And once Elaine and Carl were at Manzanar, Carl and a group of other Japanese American men insisted on on their right to enlist in the Army. And they they finally were... um, a recruiter came to camp and they were accepted into the, into the army. And so um, Carl served in, um, in Asia. He was a primarily a translator in Burma for the military intelligence service. Um, And he comes back to the Bay area, to the San Francisco Bay area meets up with his wife and son wearing a U.S. army uniform and is still, can't find an apartment because they experience um, housing discrimination based on being an interracial couple. So that's a really sad, I think that's a sad element of the story. Now, on the other hand, I think there were others who um, felt differently. And for example, um, at the, at the st- after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, immediately after the communist party of the United States um, ejected from the party, dismet, you know, excluded and, and ended the membership of any Japanese Americans. And Carl and his, his friends, who were avowed communists, were extremely upset about this, and they, they opposed it. Um, after the war, the Communist Party apologized and said that they had been wrong to exclude them from the party. So, um, so in some circles, after the war, they had a kind of heroes welcome <clears throat> but in other circles and in other circumstances such as housing and also work when Car- carl was the first asian american to be in- to be accepted into the longshoremen's union in san francisco before the war <clears throat> and he came back from um from fighting assuming he would resume that work and at first they weren't going to give him a new union card but eventually he argued for it and did receive it so they, they, they still had to argue for their place in, um, in labor and housing and other elements of life in San Francisco, even though they had lived through both this horrible, um, you know, denial of the rights of Japanese American citizens, the constitutionally guaranteed rights, and had, had fought for the United States in the war. What, tr- what attracted Elaine to Carl? Can you comment on how they fell in love and the vicissitudes of their relationship? I mean, the, the, 
I think that it was really love at first sight for the two of them and how they knew that I I don't know but I think ultimately as they got to know each other they were both they they were both their activism ran really deep and they both devoted themselves to defending the rights of others um and so they had they shared that and that was very um, central to their bond. Uh, there are other elements, though, <clears throat> in addition to that. Um, I think there's an interesting parallel between the families in that Elaine's father, Nathan um, Buchmann, had escaped. He left, he left Russia primarily because, well, for a number of reasons, to escape anti-Semitism and pogroms, but, but the... the um, turning point that the, 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 what sealed the deal for Molly and Nathan, Elaine's parents, of needing to leave Russia immediately was that Nathan was going to be conscripted into the Tsar's army. And not only did Nathan ideologically completely disagree with the exploits of that army and not want a part of it, but if you were a Jewish conscript, that, that army was no place to be. It was, it was very um, they, they did draft and conscript Jewish Russians, but they were treated ter- very badly and it was very dangerous. You might not emerge from that experience alive, even at the hands of your fellow uh, people in the military. Um, meanwhile, and uh, well, not meanwhile, because the timing is, is different, but similarly, in some, in some str- strange parallel, Carl although he had been born in Los Angeles, his family went back to Japan, um, which was not uncommon that um, immigrants from Japan to the United States would want to go back to Japan to raise their children, to have them educated there. And so um, Carl was, went to high school in Japan and had graduated high school. And he was, he had become a communist at that point um, where Elaine's father was a was a socialist um, in Russia, and Carl also was set to be uh, drafted into the Imperial Army, into the Japanese Army. And again, Carl, that was not something that Carl wanted to do at all. It was not an army he wanted to fight for. He didn't believe in. Um, he didn't agree with the politics. And so, so in although it's not Elaine herself, but it's her father. You have two people coming together, and I always have this, I visually think about the spatial element, like one's coming to California from across the Pacific and one is coming the other way around the globe and meeting up in California, but but sharing a politics and a desire to avoid militarism, you know, and, and to avoid especially the militarism of armies with which they did not agree. So I think, you know, I mean, they were both, they were both immigrants. Um, something I talk about in my introduction is they both shared the status of being both, of thinking of themselves very much as Americans while also being constantly reminded that they were foreigners. Um, and that kind of, that kind of um, middleness, I think, uh, superseded the fact that while that's true, one of them had come from a Jewish background and one from a Japanese American background. Um, they shared other things as well. They were both anti-religion. Um, so the fact that they were came from different religions really didn't matter to them one bit. Um, and also Elaine, I'll say one other thing finally, um, Elaine had been married before 
she married a man named Ed Russell. And um, that was actually, she, it ha- she married Ed before she had really come into her political consciousness. And as the, a few years went on and she became more um, embedded in communist politics, she also realized that she did not want to live the expectation, the gendered expectations that Ed had for her. They had a daughter and Ed really expected that Elaine would, you know, stay home and cook and iron his shirts and raise their daughter. And she rejected that. So that when that marriage ended, I think that she and Carl definitely shared a worldview in, in regards to gender. Um, Carl was very intent to um, have his equal share of responsibilities in terms of homemaking and raising children. It was, it was in fact, yet another thing that made them stand out as outsiders at Manzanar because Carl equally partook of childcare and of, um, you know, th- doing things like laundry and for the more traditional Japanese Americans. For the more traditional Japanese Americans who were at camp, they just found it shocking. They were just really surprised that this Japanese American man would be, you know, watching their child or doing things like that. So anyway, that was long-winded, Ari, but there's many, there were many things that made, um, I mean, really, in some ways, the book is a love story, right? It's just, there's, there, and that's people who knew them. Um, I didn't have the good fortune to know either of them, but people who knew them really talk about how deeply in love they were um, from the moment really that they were together until Elaine uh, passed away before Carl. How did Elaine's parents, Molly and Nathan meet? Molly and Nathan were childhood sweethearts. Um, They were child laborers in a match factory in in, uh, Russia, in Minsk. And um, we don't have a lot of information about that time in their childhood, but just that they, that they really, um, they bonded, they joined each other in um, labor activism from a very young age. And they also joined each other in um, being disdainful of their parents' um, religiousness, I would say. They, uh, they, were socialists and they were secular and they they believed that um, Jews needed to get out of Russia and get out of Europe and that they had no future there and so um, and so they left and came to New York initially before eventually going to California. To what degree were Elaine and Carl aware of Native American experiences of forced removal? How did they perceive this? It comes up in their writings. I don't, and in, in their speeches that they would give, I don't, I don't know that I can answer that question in the most deep way. But I do know that they invoked that history. So when they would, when they would talk about the, um, they would make the parallel between the exclusion of Japanese Americans from the coast with the. Um, exclusion of indigenous Americans from various parts of the U.S. to being relocated on reservations. Um, in fact, what they said, it's a little, it's a little complicated. You know, I, I mentioned that they actually didn't oppose the exclusion, which is 
very surprising, and, and we can talk about that more if you like, but um, one of the reasons they said that they went willingly to Manzanar is they, they invoked the history of indigenous Americans and said that when the US government wants to remove um, a population, they will just do it. And they will do it either by force or, or otherwise. Um, and they knew that. So, so they were aware of it. Um, and I think later when they became involved in the movement for redress and reparations for Japanese Americans, they also invoked um, that history as being another instance in U.S. history of the um, removal of rights of, of people who should, by all, by all rights, be um, treated equally you know, with other U.S. citizens. Why is Elaine Black Yoneda not a household name in the Jewish community? Why is she poorly known? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, um, the stories of women in general don't tend to be as known as men. And I, and I think that feminists of the 1970s, we sometimes call second wave feminists, did a lot of work about uh, recovering and recuperating the stories of women um, who led important, you know, who did important things in their lives. Um, and Elaine didn't, she, in some ways you could say she didn't take center stage um, and Carl is more known than Elaine um, in labor circles, in activist circles, which might owe in part, to be fair, it might owe in part to the fact that he was a writer and an editor. So he was, you know, his words were in print and they live on, you know, in archives in that way. Um, and at the same time, I do think that sexism is definitely at play here. Elaine, throughout the 1930s in her activist work, she was known as a as a natural born speaker, people all commented all the time that she was just a, so at, at ease and adept at speaking. After the war later in the 60s and 70s and, and even into the 80s, Carl was often asked to speak about the history of what had happened and Elaine would accompany him, but she was not the speaker. Um, and that it, it's surprising because Carl by by the descriptions I've heard of him as a person was not the most gifted speaker and was a little more shy, a little more quiet. Um, so it's, you know, there, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a question we won't fully know all the answers to, but, um, but I definitely think that part of it has to do with her gender. Um, and the fact that she wasn't, you know, that I, as I mentioned, the communist party made a conscious decision in the 1930s to, elevate the role of women in the party, but there was definitely a ceiling to that. I don't even know if it was, we, I don't even, I wouldn't call it a glass ceiling because it wasn't transparent. It was just a ceiling. It was like they could have active roles, but they couldn't rise higher than, um, she was the a vice president for a while. So from in, in the ways that we study the histories, uh, that history is too often, I would say, focused on, um, people who held the roles of the highest prominence, um, she doesn't necessarily fit that bill. So part of my interest as a historian is definitely in illuminating histories of people who were, who were not well known, but who did something interesting and important and something that teaches us about our history. 
What role did Carl and Elaine play in supporting a national memorial at Manzanar? How did they engage with the question of redress and reparation for the incarceration of the Japanese? They were very active in that movement. And it's an interesting time of their life for me as a historian, because, um, you know, again, maybe I'll take this opportunity to talk a little bit more about their decision to cooperate with the U.S. government around the exclusion and incarceration. Uh, their position was that as communists, they were avowedly anti-fascist and they, they were not alone in this. The Communist Party of the West Coast, I mean, of the U.S., but communists on the West Coast um, largely agreed that the priority had to be in fighting fascism. And Carl and Elaine believed that there were Japanese Americans who might aid and abet the Japanese army. They did not oppose exclusion and incarceration. They advocated for loyalty oaths, um, which actually were implemented later after, after the two of them had left Manzanar um, and had been implemented earlier for, Jap for, excuse me, for German Americans and Italian Americans. But later in the war, there were, um, there, there was the decision by the US military to have people attest to their loyalty to the US. Okay, so before that happened, I would say Elaine and Carl's position was, they did not oppose the exclusion and incarceration entirely. They felt that some Japanese Americans needed to be incarcerated. They didn't, they felt others didn't, but they recognized that in the, they felt in the name of expediency that they should, um, that the first thing they should do is, is support removal from the coast of Japanese Americans. So fast forward now to the, uh, I, I believe maybe it's, I, I could look up the exact date, but I believe it started in the 70s, the movement um, to establish a, a, a historic site at Manzanar and also the beginnings of the movement for redress and reparations, um, there was a lot of debate. And they, they, you know, what I looked for really closely in the archives was, did they at any time regret their earlier cooperation? And the answer I found is that they did on a number of occasions. They said, we were wrong to cooperate. We were wrong to so easily allow our rights as U.S. citizens to be taken from us. Um, and then they embraced, in, at that point, they embraced the idea that Japanese Americans should be um, apologized to and compensated um, for their losses, um, which there was, event, in, in fact, it, what's sad is that Elaine um, passed away just days before the presidential, U.S. presidential apology. Um, there was also some compensation given to Japanese Americans, um, but in a, in a very sad or also maybe ironic turn of events, because Elaine wasn't a Japanese American, they didn't receive as much compensation as other families, even though they were both incarcerated. To what degree did Elaine and Carl know of the unfolding Nazi atrocities against Jews in the Holocaust? In Manzanar, was such information available? How did, how did they come to know about the unfolding tragedy in Europe? It's hard to say. They don't, I, don't, I don't think I have the evidence to say 
exactly how they knew. I know we know some things. We know that they had newspapers at camp. They were able to subscribe to newspapers. And even when the mail wasn't working well, as I said, they had visitors who would always bring them um, newspapers. So they knew that I would, my conjecture would be they knew as much as other Americans knew. Um, they retrospectively, Elaine in, in her, the oral histories that I drew on and so forth, she did, um, she refers to the, she refers to this. She says, we knew what was happening in Europe. We knew about Hitler's ovens. You know, she'll say things like that. I don't, what I don't have is a lot of evidence of like how they, how they learned about what was happening, you know, at the time. Um, though we must imagine that Elaine's parents who still had, you know, relations and friends who were still in Russia um, probably had a very vested interest in following as best they could what was going on. What is your book's contribution to the history of the Japanese Americans' internment during World War II? What new perspectives does your book glean? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, th I think that what we need is just more detailed and specific accounts of what happened. So um, the fact, as I said, that that we shouldn't presume that all Japanese Americans had the same reaction to the events that were going on, that they brought with them the politics and social differences and cultural differences that they had as a diverse community of immigrants, you know, outside of camp um, is true. Um, specifically, there is, the history is little known about mixed marriages um, and what happened to those um, to those non-Japanese Americans who were married to Japanese Americans during the incarceration. Um, there's one really great article by a scholar named Paul Spicard about this, um, but I, I'd say here too, it's very, very little known and very little understood. The army did, the military did eventually develop a mixed marriage leave policy whereby a white um, spouse of a Japanese American who was incarcerated could potentially stay out of camp. There was more nuance to it. It varied by gender. They were more likely to allow a white father with a child to stay out of camp than a white uh, than a Japanese American father. Um, and the policy was also in and of itself incredibly discriminatory because um, I'm, I'm being specific when I say the white partners because or spouses because there were, we know there were a number of marriages between say Japanese Americans and Filipino Americans or Japanese Americans and Latinx Latino Americans um, where the leave policy wouldn't even apply to them because the, the, the non-Japanese American partner wasn't white. Um, so it was, it was problematic, but there were many, um, I mean, I, I would say there was a small but not insignificant number of these cases. And I think that too is, is very little known. What is your book's contribution to American labor history? Well, as I said, I think that, um, there are a number of scholars who right now are, are 
shining a light on the ways that West Coast labor activism in this period in the first part of the 20th century differed in character from that of the East Coast, but I would, I would say it's still not as known um, and understood as it could be. And then also, as I said, um, the history of the role of, of uh, women in Communist Party activism on the West Coast has been noted, but not, um, not really told through the eyes of those activists in particular. So I think that's also, that in itself is a contribution. Um, Another element I might men- mention is that the 1934 general strike in the San Francisco Bay Area is really one of the most important labor strikes in U.S. history. It's, it's one, of, one of the more successful um, general strikes. I thought that's a phrase that, that I heard used a lot during the years of Occupy Wall Street and that movement where a whole city, not just one industry, but a whole city really comes to a halt. And Elaine had a key key role in that strike, um, but um, there are there is information on on the record and, and in books about that general strike. But I would also say that I don't think that that strike is as well known to a general population um, as it as it should be, because it really was a key a key moment of solidarity of a strike that began among shore, longshore longshoremen and maritime workers and extended to all industries in the in the Bay Area and even to the agricultural industries of the interior of California. How did you locate your sources? What kinds of sources did you use? What was most challenging about your search for sources? What kinds of difficulties did you encounter in developing this research? The two primary sources that I used are Elaine's archives, which are at San Francisco State University in their labor archive, and Carl's archive, which is at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, In addition to those two, there was a memorial biography written about Elaine shortly after her death that was commissioned by by the labor community in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I think that the challenges I face are the challenges that many historians of women face, which is that while I said that Elaine and Carl both have archives in universities in California, Carl's archive is far more extensive than Elaine's. Um, some of that I, I believe owes to gender, um, as I said, um, and also for the reasons that Carl was more well-known and more, more the more famous of the two after the war. Um, Some of it is not necessarily about gender, but is about the fact that you take two people who were displaced um, and had to move around a lot, displaced and incarcerated um, for a time during World War II, but who constantly were, they were working class and they moved apartments constantly. So their archives are not, you know, that, one, it's, it's not hard to imagine why a person's archive such as that would be extremely different than, say, a very wealthy, let's say, a U.S. president whose papers are, you know, well, well preserved and archived. So um, I was very fortunate to have access to two oral histories that were done with Elaine while she was alive. Um, those were really, really key. Um, and she did publish some writing in in, um, the International Labor Defense's newspaper. Um, 
I was also very fortunate that a few um, scholars, Ben Kobashigawa, Arthur Hansen, spoke to me and shared with me what they knew of Carl and Elaine um, and their, their firsthand accounts. So I'm very, very grateful to their generosity. Um, but it's a challenge. It's not, you know, it's writing the biography of a woman who was not famous and who hasn't been remembered as well as she should have, as we've discussed, is a very different project than writing about someone who's um, extremely famous, which that presents its own challenges. So I don't mean to minimize that, but some of what something I talk about in the introduction is that I believe that part of the methodology of, of writing what I call feminist biography is about learning how to look at incomplete information and incomplete archives and um, use the historian's powers of analysis um, to piece together as best one can from what is available, um, a person's story. If you met Elaine personally, what would you ask her that you could not discover during your research process? What answers do you imagine she might provide? <laughs> I, this is this is a funny question because there are two there are two questions that come to mind that I would love to ask Elaine. Um, but I actually I'm going to say I wouldn't ask her these questions because they would come off as incredibly impolite. <laughs> or maybe I'd have to figure out how to ask them, but um, there are two, maybe I'll put it this way. There are two, there are two questions that really puzzle me. And I have asked other people who knew Elaine. One is um, about her first daughter, Joyce, um, because so much of her story is about her son, Tommy, but she had a daughter from a first marriage. And it's, it feels very unusual that a woman in the 1930s would um, would not, Joyce did not, Joyce spent far more of her childhood living with Elaine's parents than she did with Elaine. Elaine divorced um, from Ed, who's Joyce's um, father, moved to San Francisco, leaving Joyce in the care of, of Elaine's parents, the Joyce's grandparents. Um, very unusual for a woman in the 1930s to make a career decision to move to another city without her daughter a single mother. Um, and then she marries Carl. And when Tommy is born, they are, you know, it's really the three of them. The story is so much about the three of them. And, and Joyce does appear in, in the book, um, you know, here and there. But I, I did ask, I've asked Tommy and I've asked others um, when, when I had the opportunity to meet Tommy when he was 80 years old, you know, what, what about Joyce? And uh, Tommy assured me that she was she was, you know, part of the family and that they all were close. Um, but it's just, it re that remains a bit of a mystery to me. And the second thing I really puzzle over is it just, I just continue to puzzle over the fact that throughout the 1930s, Elaine's activism, the nature of, of the way she worked was to constantly question authority. She had no problem getting up in the face of policemen who were arresting strikers or judges who were treating strikers in court, you know, and treating them unfairly. She just seemed to have no, no hesitation to challenge authority. And yet her and Carl's um, capitulation to the exclusion 
just it just seemed really it seems out of character to me i i would want to i would love to hear more from her we have yes we know they said you know they they said and they say this on the record that they put they knew the fight against fascism had to supersede all else but it just you know it just it just doesn't add up and and what i want to say about that is that part of the challenge of writing biography in my mind is that people's actions don't always add up they don't always you know form together you know into easy narratives and um this is this is one of those examples so i i don't i don't know that she'd have an answer for it you know people i mean if i think about my life and i would prompt viewer listeners to think you know sometimes we've done something in our 20s that in our 30s we think you know or our 40s or later think oh that doesn't seem like that i'm surprised i behaved in this way or that so um there's somewhat those are somewhat unanswerable but those are things i i would to to your question ari i would try to find a way to get it if i if i could speak to her what conceptual and intellectual challenges did you cope with in trying to write a biography how would you respond to critiques of the genre of biography how did you overcome the obstacles to writing a biography in general and this biography in particular i think much of that is what i talked about in the previous answer um there's been a deep criticism of biography which i discuss in my introduction from um left-wing and labor historians who criticize the use of biography to only highlight the accomplishments of famous people often famous men um so there's often famous white men so there's you know there are some uh, aspects of privilege and race and gender in that um on the other hand there is a movement of what's sometimes called the new biography feminist biography or a biographical turn that says that writing the stories of unfamous people is is important and it's different and it gives us a real on the ground view of people's lives but um it is a challenge as i um as i noted in the introduction that um what one's life doesn't easily add up to a thesis um and um you know that we don't have complete sources and these kinds of issues um but there are a number of really i think great models of biographies that grapple with these problems and and they've been uh real inspirations for me in my process um in terms of how i work and yet um to your question i'd also say that there have been critics who have said who have questioned my reliance for example on these two oral histories and there are problems with oral histories you know you you're you're reliant on the subject's view of events um and you have to be cognizant of that but i i don't think that's insurmountable and i also think that oral histories are incredibly important and invaluable for uh historians of gender historians of any group that's been historically marginalized because um it's one of they they tend to be the only um real direct primary sources we have um i think in the book where you might i'm a, a, an example i might really point to is the way i discuss the history of the revolt at manzanar because my view of those events as informed by scholars um such as arthur hansen and others 
differs from Elaine's account in her own oral history about it. And so in that section, um, I, what I tried to do is kind of give you her version of events side by side and, and you know, moving back and forth in time with things she didn't know was happening. Um, you know, she was, she was, um, there was a violent revolt going on. So she was um, secured away in the administration office. So she couldn't know what was going on outside, but other accounts, um, you piece them together to get a whole picture. What contribution does your book make to our understanding of xenophobia? I think that we are, as a society, are all too willing to blame an other, and most often a racialized other, for um, for our own inadequacies. So, you know, again, I'll use the example of the pandemic, where we early on and erroneously ascribed the spread of the pandemic to people in China. For me, what that was really about was our own inability to respond adequately to to the crisis, um, and we hadn't we hadn't planned uh, for the pandemic, um, although we 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 should have because we had disbanded a pandemic um, committee, and we we knew it was a possibility, or some people knew, um, and so this, you know, I think that's I think that's the main the main lesson for me is. Um, the way in which the United States government was able, um, along with with the cooperation of many U.S. citizens and acceptance of many U.S. citizens to completely take away the rights of Japanese Americans during World War II, um, and that's it's something that has been that has been repeated, um, is something that we really need to try to change. What were the similarities and differences between Japanese victims of the incarceration and the experiences of Muslim Americans during the war on terrorism? Well, I would say what's similar is that when um, I would talk about the similarities in saying that because a group of people abroad, um, and and maybe not entirely abroad, um, but because of events and people abroad, we generalize from that and assume anybody who looks the same or has the same nationality or religion must be part of that larger group. Um, I think the day-to-day suspicion was probably really similar. Um, Even in the time between the bombing of Pearl Harbor before the incarceration and and during it and probably after it, all Asian Americans, um, especially on the West Coast, were were subject to um, stereotyping, violence, um, and um, denial of basic rights. Um, in the case of um, Asian Americans in World War II, even though the, the laws and the exclusion and the incarceration were specifically about Japanese Americans, they ended up impacting Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, other Asian Americans, um, partly because of the racism around assuming that all Asian Americans are the same. Similarly, you know, to talk about Muslim Americans is to talk about a very diverse group of people in terms of their nationality, in terms of their politics, in terms of how they um, relate to their, you know, their religious practices or don't or choose not to. And we tend to, in those moments, really um, 
paint with a very broad brush and, and assume that everyone's the same and enact violence against people, um, which is really misplaced and intended, you know, is a reaction at, and to anxieties and fears about someone else. What were the similarities and differences between Angel Island on the West Coast and Ellis Island on the East Coast? Yeah, it's a, um, people often refer to Angel Island as the Ellis Island of the West. I'm just going to clear my throat again. <coughs> Hold on one second. Angel Island is sometimes referred to as the Ellis Island of the West. And the similarity is that both were islands, <laughs> are islands, they still are. Both were sites where um, a very large number of immigrants came through on their way to the United States. Um, Angel Island obviously being Pacific Rim and Ellis Island being more from um, Europe, Russia, etc. What's distinctly different about them is that Angel Island was a space in which um, people were detained and held, um, some of them for months and some of them for months leading to years. So um, I think I, I'm not, I'm, I admit I'm not a scholar of either of those spaces. So it would be interesting to look at the rates of deportation, you know, meaning who, who got turned back. Um, but they both stand. I would say what they really have in common is that they both stand as symbols for the, I guess I would say for the problematic relationship that this country, the United States has to immigration. On the one hand, Ellis Island, you know, the Statue of Liberty, bring us your tired, your poor, et cetera. There, there's this rhetoric about open arms um, and welcoming, but the experience of immigrants once they get to the US isn't, doesn't always match that. and. Um, I think that people understand that, um, well, I think it's, a, again, having lived in California and on the East Coast and in New York, I think people are aware of Angel Island and, and the history of, of what's come through there more so on the West Coast than people on the East Coast. Um, I think on the East Coast, we're more familiar with Ellis Island, but um, Angel Island has a really amazing visitor center. I encourage anyone to go visit to understand more deeply the history of immigration through that space. Can you comment on the personality attributes and character virtues of Elaine Black Yoneda? Can you describe her psychological profile? What would her friends and family members say about her? What virtue ethics did she embody? Okay. Well, I'm a I'm a historian, so I'm going to say at the outset that I I believe strongly that it's not in my purview or my expertise or my job as a historian to give a psycho psychological analysis of my subjects. It's an interesting point. I mean, someone else would approach writing about Elaine in a different way. So, it's something I'm I'm glad to mention and I'm I'm conscious of because I. I can say certain things about what I glean about her personality, and I will, but I, but I, I hold myself back from trying to be an armchair analyst. Um, it's, not my, it's not my training. It's not my expertise, and I don't have, I think that um, from what I understand of, of psychoanalysis and psychology, one would, 
it, it may not be possible to sort of retrospectively analyze someone in that way. Having said that, um, Elaine, as I said, she was a powerful speaker and a powerful presence. And, and people who knew her all said that. Um, she was a very loyal friend. She maintained very strong, especially female friendships throughout her life. And maybe the thing that stands out in my mind is um, because to, to, the, to your point, Ari, in asking the question, when I met people who knew her, such as her son, Tommy, and, and Arthur Hansen, the historian, I, I would ask them, what was she like? You know, how, what, how, how could you describe her? And I, I love this description that Arthur Hansen shared with me. He said she was really, she was not a tall woman. She was maybe five feet tall, but you always felt like she was standing on her tippy toes and, and right in your face when she was talking to you. Because she was always very, I have this image of her as being very, very present and very insistent. Um, she was not, you know, the, the opposite of what we might describe as a shrinking, what do we call that? A shrinking violet or something like that. She was not a wallflower. Um, and she was, you know, she was, she was always willing and able to talk about um, where she perceived be, people being treated badly. Can you describe any childhood or adolescent experiences that impacted Elaine's personality or that formed her character or shaped the later phases of her life? Elaine's parents were very involved with socialist and communist circles. Um, that was true in New York. And then it was true in, when they moved. They moved first to San Diego briefly, but especially in Boyle Heights, the neighborhood of Los Angeles, where Elaine spent most of her adolescence. They had luminaries from the Communist Party um, come through and speak at the house um, and at, in other spaces. What's funny about Elaine is that she really eschewed her parents' politics until, until at, you know, after she'd been married to Ed for a couple of years. So she was already out of the house. But somehow, surely, it, it, all of that... Um, all of that activism and talk and, and organizing had embedded itself on her mind because um, I mean, I think that, I think it's a classic case of rebellion. I think when she was an adolescent, she um, was seeking rebellion. And so the way to rebel against your communist parents was to say, I don't care about communism, but it obviously had planted a seed because she ended up devoting her entire career to it. What kinds of problems plagued Elaine's first marriage with Ed. Why did it? Why did it end, and how long did it last? They were not married very long. Um, they, I think that Ed became. It was hard for Ed when Elaine became started to become prominent in the international labor defense in the Communist Party. Um, he felt that he deserved more of the attention than he was getting. So I think there was some. <clears throat> some jealousy that was bound up with gender issues. Why is, you know, I'm the man, I should be getting the, I should be the one getting this attention from the party. Um, and in addition to that, um, it, I think it was known that Ed was a drinker um, and he had trouble, he seemed to have trouble maintaining employment. Um, I think he and Elaine fought a lot. And I also think that what happened was um, when Ed and Elaine met, 
they were both still in this rebellious phase that I was speaking of. They both, in fact, Elaine said in her, um, would say in her oral histories that she and Ed bonded over the fact that they weren't interested in their parents' politics. Ed's parents as well were communists. That's how Ed and Elaine met because their their parents would bring them along to the same events. Um, So, you know, I think that even though both Ed and Elaine eventually became came to a political consciousness and wanted to get involved in communist politics, I think it was uneven. I think it, it, I think it became more important for Elaine than it did for Ed. So that put distance between them. And, and I also think that, you know, for, for a young woman of Elaine's age in right around 1930, um, marrying Ed was a way to get out of her parents' house. I don't think that it, which isn't necessarily the same as her really having found her soulmate. It was very clear that Carl was her soulmate, her lifelong love. The, the bond they had was just from the start so different than Ed and um, Elaine's. And so um, the last straw for Elaine about Ed came when um, when Ed, Elaine had was had a meeting of the ILD and held it at their house. And um, because the, because the office had been raided continually by the police and Ed showed up and she was having a work meeting and he started to man to demand that she iron his shirts. (laughs) She was like, I'm sorry, I'm busy working. And that, that, that turned into, I think a, a blow up that, that was like the last straw. How can students in fields elsewhere in the humanities, outside of Jewish history and Jewish studies, gain and grow from knowing about Elaine Black Yoneda? Well, to a great extent, I think that Elaine's story is about many, you know, touches many disciplines um, beyond Jewish American history. Um, it's really about labor history. It's about interethnic studies. It's about immigration history. Um, gender history. So I think that these are all um, Asian American history, obviously. So these are all these are all fields um, that I think are relevant to the book. What can Elaine and her friends teach us about the history of feminism in the 1930s? In what ways was Elaine typical or atypical of American feminists and American Jewish feminists at this time? I think even though I do believe we know better, we still t- tend to think of history as progressive, as being linear. Um, and I think it might be surprising to people to learn that a woman in the 1930s uh, prioritized career in many ways over her family, um, at least at first, that she had an active career, um, that she was a single mother, that she, um, you know, that she that she she placed that emphasis um, on her career is important. <clears throat> so I think that's um, I think that's illumin you know illuminates something about women's roles that we, we we might have a stereotype in our minds of a woman in the 1930s that I don't think Elaine matches that kind of stereotype. What can you tell us about Tommy? Can you? share with us what you know about his childhood, his adolescence, and his adulthood. Uh, What became of him after World War II? What can you tell us about his professional life? In what ways did he follow in his parents' footsteps? 
in what ways did he distance himself, if any? Sure. Um, Tommy, Tommy, I think, had a difficult life. He probably suffered from PTSD. I don't know if he would have used those um, terms, but um, I, I think he he would say, and he has he had said that the um, experience of being such a small child in being incarcerated at Manzanar hadn't had an impact on him. Um, I met him when he was eighty. And he told me that he continued to have nightmares. Um, he certainly had those nightmares throughout his childhood and his adolescence. Um, he did. He was a really good student. He um, he got a scholarship to attend Stanford. Um, after college, he became a cabinet maker and a woodworker. He settled in Northern California. Um, he was married twice, and he had children. Um, there were children in both marriages. So he, he led a very full life. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I did have the opportunity to meet him before he passed away last year. Um, he was really a very kind and gentle spirit was the sense I got from spending, spending the day with him that I did. And he loved to tell stories about his parents, his parents, obviously, you know, when you meet someone who's 80 and they, and they, can just talk and talk and talk about their parents. It was clear how important they were in his life. Where were Carl and Elaine when the Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor attack in December 1941 took place? What were they doing that day? What were they doing the week before and the immediate days prior? They were home. I mean, they, um, they heard the news over the radio and, um, it was not entire. It was a surprise, and it wasn't a surprise. There was, there was a sense that Japan, that Japan might attack the U.S. Um, I don't think anyone thought it would come in the form of a, an attack in Hawaii, um, or it, or the timing of it. I think that was a surprise as well. So, um, you know, they had been living with the concern over what would happen and what would become of the Japanese American community in the event of an, of an attack on the U.S. Um, and, um, and indeed, you know, immediately following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, their fears were, came true because there was a lot of chaos and, and lack of information and lack of understanding and questioning of, of the role of Japanese Americans and what their what their immediate future would hold. What are the pros and cons of using the term concentration camp as opposed to the term internment camp to describe the Japanese experience? What are the risks or consequences or ramifications of these two different terms? It's actually a really important question because I would say that um, popularly, the phrase internment camp is used um, pretty very regularly. On the other hand, um, scholars, a number of scholars, among them Roger Daniels, um, primarily Roger Daniels and others following him, argue that, um, that the term is incorrect. And the reason it's incorrect, according to Daniels, is that internment is an actual legal process that the United States has at its disposal to um, detain non-U.S. citizens. So in calling these Japanese-American camps internment camps, it, it 
and and I agree with this and believe in this, it further it furthers the notion that they were not American citizens. <laughs> they were American citizens, and the way that they were incarcerated was illegal under U.S. law. Um, so internment camp is a phrase that is a that is in some ways a euphemism <clears throat> that covers up that illegality, and that's what I think is the most dangerous about it. The term concentration camp is fraught. As a Jewish American, um, I certainly absolutely recognize this. We tend to think of concentration camps as being <clears throat> the Nazi camps in Europe. Um, scholars of the Holocaust and of the war in Europe now will say that not all concentration camps were death camps. The death camps were a subset of a larger set of camps called concentration camps. And by definition, a concentration camp is simply a space in which a population is concentrated for a particular reason. Um, so said in that way, I think concentration camp is a, is a phrase that does adequately describe um, the camps where Japanese Americans were, <clears throat> were, were incarcerated. And, and the force of the term incarcerated, again, is, is purposeful to differentiate the notion of being interned. They were imprisoned. They were imprisoned against their will. They were not free to leave. Um, now, you know, I, I know this is a bit contentious and Elaine herself um, acknowledged, you know, and others have acknowledged that Manzanar was not a death camp. It was not Auschwitz. Uh, its ultimate goal was not genocide. And that is important to state as a difference. And yet, even I, I think the, the most revealing, the most revelatory fact, which I learned from Roger Daniels' work, is that the camps in the United States were described as concentration camps until the liberation of the camps in Europe. And once the full horrors of those camps in Europe were, were revealed to the U.S. population, then internment camp became a usage to differentiate what happened in the United States from what happened in Europe. Again, I'm not at all saying that the experience of Manzanar was the same or is, you know, it, it did not result in genocide in the same way that um, it happened at, at Auschwitz or other camps in Europe. On the other hand, as, as I've pointed out, I think there is a parallel between the, the system of racial classification that led to concentrating Jews and others in camps in Europe and the same classification, racial classification system that led to the concentrating of Japanese American citizens in the United States. And so in that way, making the parallel, I think has some um, political import and gravity. I appreciate your thoughtfulness and your thoroughness in this dialogue. Um, yeah. Thank you for your eloquence and your erudition. Thanks. There is one thing, Ari, I would love to add. I am really excited to say that the book has been optioned to be produced as a feature film by New York-based uh, producer Tony Amatulo. So we are, wow. Um, wow. Tony... Yeah, Tony is really, um, it's been a great process and, and um, we really believe that Elaine's story should be, should be brought to the screen. So we hope that will come to fruition. Do you, have any, do you have any sense of the timeline? No, I don't. These things take 
long time. But Amazing. Yeah. I'm honored. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. And oh, thanks. I could not be more blessed to have learned everything that you shared with us uh, during this dialogue and could not be more more happy that all your efforts to bring this book into reality has not only borne fruit, but borne fruit in the possibility of a film being made. That's, that's, that's really phenomenal. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Thank, this is a great, this has been a great opportunity and I'm so pleased to share all this information with uh, your listeners, Ari, and um, I hope everyone reads the book. My pleasure. What are you working on now as a current project? Can you share with us <laughs> what you're doing subsequently as research after this book? Well, um, one thing I'm doing right now is I am furthering my study of Yiddish language, which I very much enjoy. And I do sometimes study um, Yiddish language newspapers from the United States from the early 20th century. Um, and then also, I, I have a few other ideas in, in the works, but I, I don't think they're cooked enough. I don't think I'm ready to talk about them yet. Okay. I wish you the best of luck with them. Thanks, Sorry. Great to talk to you. To our listeners, this is Ari Barbalat on the New Books Network. I have been discussing Rachel Schreiber's new published volume, Elaine Black Yoneda, Jewish Immigration, Labor Activism, and Japanese American Exclusion and Incarceration, published by Temple University Press 2021. She is University Professor of Art, Media, and Cultural History at the New School. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you. Thank you.